Hello, and welcome to a special season of Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and for this season, we will be interviewing writers who contributed to the recently published book, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of the PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals, as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out PEN America's mission. PEN America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. We're going to spend the entire season talking with writers from the book, and today I'm speaking with Curtis Dawkins and Ryan Gaddis. Curtis is communicating with us by phone from a correctional facility where he is serving life without parole. He is the author of the critically acclaimed short story collection published in 2018, The Gray Bar Hotel. Ryan Gaddis, <laughs> yes, Ryan is holding up the book. Ryan is a Penn America prison writing mentor and the award-winning author of Safe, The System, and All Involved. He's also a member of the art collective, and I hope I'm pronouncing this pre- correctly, is it Uglar? Uglar. Uglar works. <laughs> Uglar works. Welcome to both of you. And uh, so, and we've established that you can hear each other. So if you want to address each other directly, yep. you can. And Curtis, okay. I'm, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell our audience about your journey to becoming a writer? Well, my journey is a long one, and it started about 25 years ago, long before I was ever incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So you always felt like you were a writer just from the very beginning? No, not from the very beginning. I had a class at Southern Illinois University. Yeah, there, my uh, mom went there. Great, <laughs> go Salukis, tell your mom. Yeah, great. It's a fun town. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we went through the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and right. just something clicked. Um, I did not. It took several more years before I thought maybe I could be a writer, and then I went back to school, and unfortunately, I got an education and got an MFA, and then found my way back into using, I've always had an addictive penchant and found my way back into the wrong way to do things, shooting a man that I didn't know on Halloween 2004. So immediately when I got locked up, thank God, I I still kept that love of books and the love of trying to write. And it was just a natural then that, well, I'm either going to die in here um, or I'm going to make use of, you know, the talent that God gave me. Who do you think are the writers that have most influenced you? Uh, I like the old men and women, Hemingway's and Virginia Woolf's. Um, but I love, you know, contemporary writers like Don DeLillo and George Saunders and Lydia Davis and Joy Williams. Yeah. And just whoever, you know, they're usually not the best sellers. Uh, it's usually the different voices that, that resonate with me. Right. So, so, and I wanted to ask you about a quote from the book um, where you say, publication doesn't make you a writer, writing does. Because um, I feel like as human beings, we naturally seek, you know, recognition and validation from other human beings, both 
inside and outside of our or- orbit. So if you are the only person reading your writing, how do you know that it's good? Uh, I don't. That's where I lack the most is internally validating what I'm doing because I get too caught up in, in the worldly view of things. So I struggle with that daily, but I'll write something and, and then if I put it away for a month or so and read it again, I can, the only thing I can, I'm learning to go by is that I write what, and I've heard this a million times, but you write what you would like to read. So that's right. what I try to do. And then if I put it away for a while and, and come across it again, almost not as accident, but have put it away and I can read it and sometimes get a feeling. That's that's why I think it's important to have a group of writers, even people uh, with me in prison or friends that I have out there to get a second take on things. Those writers were, or artists were delusional. I mean, we have to be. <laughs> yeah. So we can delude ourselves, I can anyway, into thinking, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that's probably ever been written. <laughs> or I can just as easily say, oh my God, this is the worst thing that has ever been written. We've got to have other people. Definitely. How do you know when it's ready to show to other people? Hmm. I'll take, I've been working, or I worked on a short story recently, and I guess I knew when I had a, a tentative ending, it is mostly about feel. I think that maybe that's, this is the wishy-washy, artsy, fartsy part that people have to swim their way out of. Yeah. To mix, mix metaphors. If creating art is like drowning, and often it is, <laughs> uh, the then I guess you just learn. And uh, there's nothing really concrete about any of this. Uh, so I can only speak, you know, I just, ha- I just have a feel when it's, when it might be ready for somebody else to look at. Gotcha. Gotcha. So Ryan, I want to ask you the same starting question a little bit. Can you share a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer? Sure. I, I think it was a series of pretty concrete steps. I mean, I was born on an airbase in Illinois to an Air Force family, uh, moved to Colorado when I was very young. And basically it was just assumed that my brother and I would would go to the Air Force Academy. That was very much within my, my drive, you know, my purpose, my passion at that time uh, until I had a horrible accident at, at 17 years old. I was hit in such a way that it tore my nose out and I had to have two facial reconstructive surgeries. And uh, the recovery time lasted more than a year. And so much of that time was spent reading books and watching films and connecting with fictional characters who, who really opened up an entirely new world for me in, in terms of pain and loss and you know things that I really didn't have any sense of prior to what I'd been through. Thankfully, after that, my dad was actually with me in the room uh, during one particularly uh, painful procedure. And he... he kind of let me go. I think his dream of me being in the military, you know, died that day. And it, it gave me some freedom uh, to go to university out in Southern California and ultimately to do my master's in England, which uh, allowed me to to push forward to, to where I am today. But to be honest, I mean, uh, Kathy, so much of, of me even sitting here with you is, is just showing up and trying to take advantage of an opportunity uh, and knowing full well that there's always, you know, 30, 40, 50 other people who might take it if I don't work as hard as I can. 
No, I get I get that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your method when you're being a mentor to um, writers who are incarcerated. How do you go about helping them to find their voice? Sure. Well, I think one of the first things I always say is you already have your voice. It's not about finding it. If anything, it's about self-belief. You know, and this is something that I, I honed to a degree, you know, in, in 10 years of teaching creative writing at Chapman University. It, it's no different in a carceral environment. It, it, if anything, I think it's about self-confidence. It's about, you know, having that trust for perspective and gut level feeling. You know, it related to the world and how one sees it and what one thinks is important and what one wants to connect to. Uh, so we focus a lot on, you know, how to write naturally in first person mainly. But of course, it all, it all depends on what a writer is trying to achieve. And I do my best to mold uh, according to, to what they want to accomplish. Yeah, because well, what you said actually reminds me of something that Curtis said in his piece. He says, there's no such thing as writer's block, just fear of writing badly. So, Curtis, does that mean you don't think that there's any such thing as bad writing? There's no such thing as bad writing? Yeah. There's well, no such thing as writer's block? Yeah, because when you say there's no such thing as writer's block, just fear of writing badly. Um, yeah, we all write badly. I mean, yeah. that's just part of it. Right. Uh, How do you get I mean, past the fear? As a Curtis uh, as a writer and then Ryan as an <laughs> instructor. I get past the fear by just... I've got nothing else. This is it. And this is the only way I'm going to get out. Right. Is by writing my way out. And I've always known that. I've never not believed that I was not going to get out. Even though the state says that I'm going to die here. I have never believed that. And I know that uh, this is my life. I don't have a, I don't have the luxury of being afraid of writing every day. You know, most of the men that I'm around have never known that they even have a voice. And mm -hmm. I, I commend Ryan on helping them, let them, I mean, that's why art is so important for these guys. They can do something good. All of them can. And all of them have a story to tell or paintings to paint. Right. So it's, it's that initial fear. I mean, they're used to doing what they know and that fear is so prevalent of, you know, being away from their from their friends and, and doing something out of the ordinary. So it's just, you got to get to the place, at least I do, where I realize I don't have the luxury of being fearful. I'm going to write badly. And hopefully I can just move through that to what's good. And Ryan, how would you, if you were counseling a student, what would you say to somebody who's having those feelings? What I've said time and again is writing is a process. And without question, the most important thing to do is get something out, get something on paper so that it can be honed, so that it can be edited, so that it can be uh, pushed to a new place, a better place, something that's a little bit closer to, you know, what you, what your soul wants to say, what your heart wants to say. Because I think the, the trick is starting. I think Car Curtis absolutely nailed it. Starting and then continuing to go it's going to be difficult. It's going to be rocky. There are going to be times where, where you don't trust yourself. And by the way, this is not all coming from a teaching perspective. This is also coming from me saying, uh, this is how I know it as a writer. That's absolutely the case. And I think more than anything, at least for me, you know, what gets me up every morning is just knowing that, you know, t talent is honestly everywhere, but opportunity is scarce. 
and I've been blessed to continuously have opportunities to get my writing out there and be published. And I'm not going to let go of that. You know, I came from a place where no one was a writer. I'd never met a writer. It was not something you could be. It was not something that anyone aspired to. And I think in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's, that's the way I, I, I meet folks and we, we create a common ground because almost everyone that I spend time with and, and, and help uh, teach them to, to write just a bit better, get to that voice and, and really push their perspective out into the world, I, 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 you know, almost every time it's because they thought that world wasn't for them. They thought their voice wasn't allowed in that space. And all my job is, is to help them understand your voice is what you make it. The page is yours that, you know, if you're, if you're seeking freedom, it's, it's there on the page and you can create the world. You guys are both writers of fiction and, um, and I know, uh, Ryan, you actually have Curtis's book. I do. Yeah. 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 And I'm a big fan of the short story, um, the way that you can just drop a reader into like a vivid world for a limited amount of time, because there's something about that as opposed to a novel where you're living with characters for a while. So I wanted to ask you, Curtis, are you working on more short story collections? No, I, I well, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Okay. I, <laughs> That's I, okay. I have recently parted ways with my agent and and I have two novels and a novella that my, I'm like that actor who said, what I really want to do is direct. Right. <laughs> so what I really want to do is be a novelist. Not that there's anything, I love short stories too. And, right. But to me, the novel is a higher form just because it's harder for me. Got and it. I haven't had zero success <laughs> getting them published. So that's what I'm trying to do. And in the meantime, I'm painting and working oh. on short stories. I've always dabbled in painting. And when I'm not working on writing something, when I'm not in a project, then I, I have to keep that part of my brain alive. Totally. Or, or you know, focused on Really, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but it's, it's important <laughs> to keep that artistic Energy. part of you going yeah. every day. How would you describe your painting style? Are you a like abstract person? Uh, weird, weird and abstract. Yeah, love it. Though I, the last one I did was pretty a concrete, pretty concrete. It was a barn door with a. I like the light. Like I try to do like Edward Hopper and paint, right. paint the light. I, I love that. So it's just, you know, it's not going to go in any museum anywhere, but it's fun to just do that. Well, you never know. You never know where your art's going to take you. That That is what makes it great. But, you know, when you were talking about wanting to write a novel, because every once in a while I'll run into people who say that they don't read fiction, um, which always makes me a little suspicious. Um, so I want to ask you both, why do you think that fiction is necessary for the full life of a human mind? I have a couple of quotes from Ryan. Fiction is for struggling with the biggest questions we encounter as human beings. So why is fiction better for struggling with those questions than, say, poetry or journalism? Uh, this is my personal opinion, and of course it is shaded by the fact that I am a novelist. But I think the the sheer breadth and depth of the freedom one has in creating an entire world, you know, the atmosphere, the settings, characters, their internal lives, their struggles, the conflicts that they have simply by being themselves or, you know, having 
clashing desires, you know, with, with other ideally fully realized characters. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done because of the sheer responsibility, the sheer weight of, of trying to create a believable world that will stop a reader from questioning it every moment. If they can just melt right into the story and, you know, get past that conscious critical mind and hopefully, you know, get to the place of, of, you know, rhythm and poetry and, and, and most importantly, emotion, you know, stories for me have always given me glasses and, you know, given me an opportunity to see certain parts of the world more sharply than I ever could before. And that's what I try to create in my own work, which is why, which is why I write from so many narrative points of view. I mean, all involved had 17 different narrators and uh, the system had 12 and even safe. All of them reliable. (laughs) Well, you know, some are reliable, some are not, but it's up to you as the reader to always decide what you think. Um, but I, but that's the the other thing, and I think you have, have kind of walked me right up to it expertly, Kathy. Which is that, you know, I always trust the reader, you know, to make their own decisions about this. All I can do is my research to the absolute best of my ability, spend time with real folks who have done the things that I describe in my fiction, and, and then trust the reader to to come to that judgment themselves. Because I think if you can get a reader there, that's when change can occur. And and I can honestly say, I think some of my my largest uh, emotional epiphanies throughout my life have been triggered in some way, shape, or form by by reading fiction or or digesting it and and having an experience in the world and realizing, oh wait, you know, there, there's more here. Question yeah. for you, Curtis. I was asking you if you felt like there was a deeper truth about the human experience um, that you can explore with fiction that you feel goes unacknowledged oh, okay. or unexplained. Yeah, I always. I mean, I have written essays, but I think I sh- what Ryan intimated also is so true that nonfiction is just so limiting. Why Why would you want to only tell the truth when you can lie? <laughs> right, but why do you think lying is important in order to explore, like, the human condition, you know? Well, who was that that said that Art is a lie that tells the truth. If you're limited, then you're limited. If you're only, you you remember the trouble Fry got into when he tried to pass off fiction as right, right, right. Because the truth is never as good as as the. uh, There's a movie that I love, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. They and the refrain in that movie is. Look, when the legend outweighs the truth, go with the legend. Yeah. It's because if we're, I mean, I do not read nonfiction. I guess I, now, of course, the last book I read was the first volume of My Struggle, which is ostensibly nonfiction by that um, Scandinavian writer. Oh, Aldegard. right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That very, well, no, he, he calls that a novel. Yeah, so, he does. So there you go. I mean, the the simple answer is a lie is always better than the truth. You don't have to just stick with the facts. Yeah. I guess that's the that's the crux. Aren't all artists mm. sort of rascals. They like to make stuff up, and 
in that way, yeah. unbeknownst to them, get to something that's even more eternal. They don't like to be pinned down, for sure. Right, right. And that, and those are the guys that I, and, and ladies, that I love, those sort of rascally people, even Van Gogh and whoever. Right, uh, right. That, that are just uh, having fun, I guess. <laughs> having fun and cutting their ear off. <laughs> yes. Can I ask what truths you feel like you're exploring in your painting? You know, I was just thinking about this. Okay, so finding the abstract in the concrete. So the painting that I just did is of the light over a barn door. It's very simple, but it then it all comes down to highlighting all the angles and the shade and the, the geometry in abstraction. Is- so I like things. I love to read things. One of my favorites is Waiting for Godot, and I just love the absurdness, <laughs> the truth and the absurdness of life. Yes. To me, that that's just, cause we're, you know, none of us are getting out of here alive, so you might as well find the fun try, trying to, to have a confidence in your own weirdness. Yeah. I think there's there needs to be more of, if there's underrepresented voices, it's the ones who find the weirdness and absurdity in everyday life. And most often that comes, you know, they're doing a better job of the African-American writers, the trans, the gay, the, all those marginalized people, they, uh, they see things like I do. Yeah. Or, or ways that I have never even thought about thinking. And I love that Ryan brought up uh, movies because that's, you know, that's a great joy of mine too. So let me ask you, is there a magic hour for you in terms of light when you're painting? Like a particular time of day when you have to be at your easel because the light is there. You feel like it's there for you. No, 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 because I just, I just like create my own. Cause there was no, it was just what I, I had a picture of this, an actual picture of this barn door with a light over it, but it was taken during the day. I just added the uh. cone of light. I always, I used to have a book of Edward Hopper. I know I brought him up before, but yeah. And Hockney is Hockney said he moved to California for the shadows, right? For the light and the shadows. I don't. I don't even paint from outside. Got it. Yeah. No, Hockney was the first artist I saw when I moved to LA, and I actually just saw Edward Hopper's The Diner. um, Oh yeah. Portrait because I was just in Chicago at the Art Institute, and oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, yes, Nighthawks at the Diner. So, uh, Curtis, what are you going to share with us today? This is a short story called Detroit Willie Nelson. Uh, people around here would pronounce it Detroit Willie Nelson. Yeah, so, right, Detroit. <laughs> exactly. And, and I'm just sort of skipping around. So, okay. De- Detroit Willie Nelson. Falling asleep or fully asleep, cars on Maple Street or cell doors opening. Any blunt sound was the clanging shut of those doors. The nightly continuum of sleep plotted his return, as if that were the reality, his freedom, the dream. Jay had been on parole for two months, living in a Kalamazoo apartment. His PO found him across from Bronson Hospital. Nightly lit as brightly as a prison yard, it was a world unto itself. 
one for healing, frequently punctuated by battles for life and death, and the occasional helicopter landing on a pad that he could not see from his street-level window. He always had the irrational fear that the green window-rattling insect would keep descending forever. His younger sister, Shay, had been a sleepwalker until the age of 12. They had shared a bedroom, and he got used to waking and seeing her bed empty. She might be anywhere, inside or out. He'd found her waiting for the school bus, her Cinderella lunchbox stuffed with loose saltines. So when he was moved to Michigan Reformatory a year before release, he was not greatly moved when his new bunkie, Vincent, said he was a sleep talker. Jay told Vincent about his sister, Sleepwalker, about the time he found Shay in a swing at the neighborhood park and the 3 a.m. bus stop and other memorable sleepwalking anecdotes. With Jay being short and his history with Shay, they'd get along just fine as bunkies. Vincent read books from the prison library or watched TV on his bottom bunk, wheeze laughing occasionally like a cartoon rodent. He had red hair and a patchy crimson gray beard, was about 200 pounds now, though the feral skeletal meth cooker was barely concealed in his gaunt jaw, cheekbones, the pronounced neck tendons, and teeth rotting at the gums. Meth cookers seemed to be resting just so they could cook again. He'd seen dozens go home, then return in only a few months a shadowy burn victim, the mind seared of all that had come before. After midnight, his shallow snore turned deep and slow, and he'd frequently become a sleeping raconteur. The sleep-talking voice was hushed enough that Jay could have easily slept through it, but why? He had custodial maintenance from nine to noon, then nothing. He could sleep in the afternoon if he wanted. He once asked Vincent if he actually dreamed, or if sleep-talking functioned as an alternative. But Jay felt as if he'd asked a greyhound if it saw and colored. The greyhound wouldn't know what you were talking about. Not that Vincent dog, though owing to a self-conscious technique to keep the rotting parts of his teeth hidden when he smiled, his top lip became a canine lip curl. Jay concluded that his bunkie did not dream in pictures, which, according to psychologists, should cause his head to explode or something. Wasn't dreaming essential to sound mental health? Vincent hadn't seemed any more or less insane than other prisoners, but what could you say about the mind of someone doing life on the installment plan? Since the age of 14, Vincent had spent no longer than two years outside of institutions. Almost 45, he was on his F prefix, meaning he'd been sentenced to prison on six separate occasions. The afternoon that he peed clean into the cup outside Kevin, his PO's office, Jay lay on his couch thinking. He had five dollars, but there was nothing he could do to earn more until six the next morning when the temp agency filled the 50 to 100 job requests. He would get paid immediately afterwards. He fell asleep thinking he'd walk down to Harding's Market with his five dollars, get a loaf of bread and some peanut butter. He dreamed that he was wearing blue scrubs at a stainless steel table. Someone lay in an anesthetized Labrador in front of him, a pretty lady with a Slovakian accent, accent and fire for hair said, F-H-O. He knew her, of course, Dr. Petra from Dr. Jeff, Rocky Mountain Vet. 
On the show, Petra's hair was dyed bright red. He asked her if fire for hair hurt, but she only smiled at him. Then Jay got to work making an incision on the hip. He treated the lab, lab's hip dysplasia by performing a femoral head osteotomy. In six to eight weeks, the removed femoral femoral ball would be, become flexible and pain-free scar tissue, curing the most common orthopedic ailments in dogs. Next, Dr. Petra lay a puppy near death with parvo on the table. You could only treat the symptoms, hook him up to fluids, and hope for the best. Next, the pit bull that had been shot in the chest, defending its owner. Jay looked at the x-rays. There was no way to fix the shattered bone. You could drill IEM pins through the fragments, but it was never going to heal. Amputation. A poodle had eaten something that would not pass. Exploratory surgery. A cat had bladder stones, which he removed and wrote a prescription for a specialized diet. Jay was very busy at his stainless steel table, fixing urethras, removing tumors, restraining broken bones with IEM pins and external fixators. He cleaned out clotted salivary glands. Veterinary medicine was the job he was meant to pursue. He had watched magnitudes more TV shows about animals in zoos and veterinary offices than moonshiners. He could perform spays and neuters in his sleep which is exactly what he did for the next 10 minutes or so, not on the stainless steel table, but at the kitchen counter of a small town fire station. Dogs and cats, a tiger, a bear, a camel, zebras, horses, wolves, fainting goats, you name it, the procedure was the same, only the size varied. Near the end of the spay and neuter line came a middle-aged man. Jay put him to sleep and within two minutes had tossed his testicles into the nearest garbage can. Dr. Jeff, Jay's mentor, would be impressed by the quickness of the neutering. You'll be a lot happier, Jay said to the man recovering on the floor next to a Rottweiler. He removed his surgical gloves with a satisfying smack. How long before it was discovered that Jay had no degree besides a GED? The instant he snapped off those surgical gloves, he became aware that this fantasy would die upon waking. His dream world certainty in reality would be similar to grasping a tendril of smoke. Christine from Dr. Jeff, a pretty black-haired vet tech, heavily tattooed with astrological symbols and an nose ring, took his hand and led him into the Parvo quarantine room. There were no sad, sick puppies in the 15 kennels, but inmates he'd known. And in the center was Vincent, with wide open eyes and a curled canine lip. The vet tech let go of his sweaty hand, walked out the small room, and locked the door behind her. When Vincent began talking, Jay knew that he'd heard this one before. That's where I stopped. Ah, uh, okay. I stopped. That was incredibly vivid. I could picture it all. All right. So is there anything else that you feel you want to share with our audience of people who are attempting to get their voices out, to create community, to maybe they're afraid of fiction? <laughs> um, so I actually, I was wondering, do you think you have to like your characters in order to be, have you ever had a character that you don't like, but you feel compelled to write or make real? I love people we hate <laughs> and uh, so the last novel I wrote was about a Houdini like 
actually, I think it's Houdini, who puts himself on death row in Texas to see if he can actually escape mm. a real mm. prison, not a, not a, it's not a publicity stunt. So he's not a very nice character, but, you know, just like you and I were talking earlier, those are the ones that I kind of like to hang around. Right. Are the ones that not necessarily amoral or immoral, but those are the most fun to write about, I think. No, I think I think that's true. Ryan, what do you think? Have you ever had a character that you hated that was hard to write? <laughs> uh, no, actually. Um, oh. <laughs> I don't. I, I know that sounds horrible because no. I've been accused of writing some quite rascally, difficult, hateable characters, but I don't hate them. And I, I think for me, it was my novel all involved that, that broke through to an extent. And to this day, I'm always shocked at, at which character people seem to connect with the most. And there's one particular character who is just on an absolute rampage. He's a bit of a Tasmanian devil, you know, during uh, day two of the, uh, the LA uprising also, you know, colloquially known as the, the LA riots. And you would not believe uh, the amount of educated, well-to-do people who will come up to me and say, that's my favorite character in the book. So I think that totally uh, goes alongside what, what Curtis was saying about people liking characters they don't, they don't honestly enjoy or would want to hang out with. But fiction is, is that dream space. You know, it's, it's that place where we can experience possibilities and see the consequences of other people's behavior without having to deal with uh, the pain and difficulty ourselves. And as a result, it, it ends up being uh, quite a fascinating journey. I just wanted to ask really quickly, are you also a Raymond Chandler fan, Curtis? Me? I yeah. have read some Raymond Chandler. Yeah, I love those noir, the Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. And uh, there's so many. That, that I am not that familiar with, but yeah, those are, that's my favorite area, those dark, shadowy places. Do you get to see the films from that period? Yeah, on TCM. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, we're, I'm a big Noor Alley fan. And so, Ryan, I was wondering if you could share a piece of writing that moved you. Either it can be your own or it can be the work of someone else. Sure. You know, originally, I had selected a small portion of Ask the Dust, which is the seminal Los Angeles novel written in 1939 by John Fonte. Uh, Fonte is a writer who is so deeply close to my heart because he's also from Colorado. And we, we both came west. We both ended up in L.A. and we both write about Los Angeles with, with a fervor and a fury. Um, however... I was so happy to be connected with Curtis for this because I read the Gray Bar Hotel as part of my research for the system. So I made a, a very real dive into the work of, of incarcerated writers, and it was, it was hugely valuable in, in, in terms of giving me more perspectives uh, to help understand the system as it stands in the state of California. So if possible, I would love to read uh, from a human number in the gray bar hotel. And this is basically written from the perspective of a prisoner who will randomly call people on the phone just to try to find a connection. <laughs> I love that. Go ahead. 
Please. People love to talk. That's why they answer. I try to listen past their voice and into their home, to the world around them. What TV show is playing? What pets are running around? I once heard a parakeet squawking, he's buried in the sandbox. I listen for the traffic outside, a neighbor playing piano. Once, in a senior-assisted living building, I heard a xylophone being hammered in expert scales. Countless layers of sound make up the world. And I hear it all. Voices, vacuuming, traffic through an open window, the hum of washers, dryers, refrigerators, all so slight the sound is barely perceptible. It's, it's really uh, phenomenal stuff. Yeah, I love the, I mean, he totally captures the soundscape. I was just, you know, it's so vivid. Yeah, it's perfect for fiction. It's, it's kind of a perfect, perfect emotional portrait of someone who is trying desperately to reach into the world by any means possible. Right. And, and hear things that perhaps your, your, you know, normal person in any of those other circumstances either takes for granted or simply doesn't hear anymore. And I was struck too by somebody who, if you're locked away and you, you know, it sort of changes the way that you move through the world in terms of your senses. Mm. So the sense of hearing becomes in some ways more important. So, and I was thinking about, you know, hearing the sounds of like the voices of people you love or just the voices of people, you know, Um, and that idea that you're, you know, still a part of humanity. um, And, you know, how do you continue to make those connections when you're physically separated from a lot of humanity? That's a great point. And, and I relate to it so much, you know, as, you know, as an older person who spent so much of his, you know, early uh, teen years on the phone, <laughs> just <laughs> listening to vo- voices and, you know, talking to people. I mean, I don't, I don't know that my niece and nephew experienced the world uh, in that same way anymore. And that's okay. Right. But you're absolutely right. It, it, it is an atmospheric avenue into a, a different world. Yeah. And, and that's, um, you know, the best writers are great listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen with your eyes as well as your ears. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there are certain writers, you're, I mean, we were talking a little bit about ago about Raymond Chandler. Um, there's a certain way that he writes dialogue that is, mm. you know, um, it's both real and unreal because he listens to the way people speak, but also there's a heightened version of it. And uh, that is, and I think that's why he translates so well to film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But dialogue driven medium. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. I hope this hasn't been too much of a fractured journey. Oh, no. Thank you, Kathy. This has been wonderful. And I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, to speak not only to Curtis, but, but to yourself and just spread the word a little bit more about this book. I appreciate the work you're doing and in all forms. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm going to thank Curtis. He's no longer with us um, because of time constraints, but on the phone and uh, wish you the best in all of your future endeavors. Okay. 
You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.